Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Garfield, and this is Thursday, September 8th, 2016. Happy Labor Day to everyone. I hope you had a good one. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And, of course, this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call our main number, 202-838-6345, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you and our other activities have had value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Many of you know we have been trying in every way possible to get the word out to all distressed homeowners and lawyers, and we have met challenges in accomplishing our goals. At the suggestion of many of our readers, we started exploring other options, including automation, on how to help consumers. We are pursuing the automation option and building that platform, which is why we need contributions. I want to announce that we will shortly be offering paralegal services for the production of notices, letters, pleadings, lawsuits, memos, discovery, and much more. While these services are actually directed uh, uh, at attorneys, pro se litigants will be able to access these services as well. Of course, we were all very pleased with our victory in the purse glove case last year where a judge found, a senior judge found that there was no connection between the loan and the trust, a fact that I have been stating for pretty much 10 years now. And I always knew that there would be a case that went much further than that in finding that the whole scheme of trust claims were false. Perhaps by luck, it turned out that the next such case was one in which I was the lead counsel. 
and I was glad to be there, obviously. This case greatly expands the effects of the Purse Glove case, corroborates what I've been writing on the blog, and probably will have some national significance as lawyers and pro se litigants across the country read closely the transcript, which I will publish when the decision has become final. Um, And that transcript will contain a 30-minute recitation by a judge who really did take the time to listen to the testimony, weigh the objections, and eventually determine the weight of the evidence which had been admitted. I think one of the first lessons that needs to be put out there is that there's a huge difference between admitting information into evidence of the case and whether that information will be given any weight at all or very little weight. As it turns out in this case, that I'm talking about and I'm going to be talking around it rather than giving you specific information as to which case it is until it's final. Um, The weight of the evidence is what made the big difference to the judge. And we, of course, had a judge who took great care in examining everything to determine what he felt was the truth. So tonight I'm discussing some lessons learned from a case that went very well for my clients and shows promise of affecting the results in cases across the country. The case is in Florida, but that is all I'm going to say about it right now because the findings of fact, rulings of law, and final judgment of dismissal of the case without prejudice have been dictated into the court record by the presiding judge, but the judge's, the judgment has not been officially rendered. On my blog and on this show, I will share the specifics and, as I said, the transcript of those rulings, which it took him about 30 minutes to dictate into the record. I will do that at a later time, but here are some lessons that can be talked about now in connection with foreclosure defense as inspired by what happened at that case that I am talking about. As a caveat, let me say that this was a rare judge who paid very close attention to the testimony, very close attention to the exhibits and the law, and he alone spent two hours in deliberation before he finally announced his findings, rulings, and judgment for the case. This alone distinguishes this particular judge from thousands of other judges who have entered rulings without any deliberation, which is why so many cases In fact, the vast majority of them 
could be described as wrongful or even fraudulent foreclosures. Second thing is this judge was particularly attuned to the rules of evidence. That's another thing that distinguishes him from thousands of other judges who pretty much rule on evidence often by the seat of their pants. And as a result of that, he weighed, carefully weighed the objections, the effect of the objections, weighing each objection carefully and fully. Instead of being irritated by my objections, he fully understood that he was there to call balls and strikes and not to prejudge the outcome of the case. All too often I have heard the same story and experienced it myself where the rulings on objections seem to derive from the bias or prejudgment of the court that this is going to end in a final judgment of foreclosure and a forced sale regardless of whether it is a judicial state or a non-judicial state. So let's talk about what we can talk about now and see what lessons there are to be learned for now. And partially because of this case, I am for the first time in, I guess, six years, re-entering the field of seminars and I'm going to be giving a seminar with Patrick Junta and others um, probably in November uh, here in Fort Lauderdale. And we will be going over securitization as we now know it and not as we have been theorizing it. And we will be going over trial tactics and strategies, and of course, we can't pack three years of law school and 40 years of experience and trying to, in my case, about 2,000 cases uh, into one day, but it will be a full-day seminar. First, and I've said this countless times, you waive your objections if you don't timely raise them. So in this case, I was jumping up and down, doing more squats than I would at the gym. It got to the point where it became so tiring for me. My next birthday, I'll be 70, and I'm not in the greatest of shape, as some of you know, that I made a request to the court that was granted in which I could object from a sitting position. The error I constantly see when I go to court is that defense counsel in foreclosure cases fails to object at all, or the defense counsel offers the objection after a whole string of questions, each of which was subject to a valid objection but waived once the next question was asked. The result is that the objection at the end of the string of questions is overruled not because it was invalid, but because it was not timely raised at the time the objection was made, at the time the question was was asked, at the time the witness tried to answer. And that, of course, would have been coupled with a motion to strike the question 
and the answer from the record, something that happened in, in my case where my uh, many of my objections were sustained and my motions to strike were granted. Many of the objections were, many of my objections were sustained, which made it extremely difficult and, in fact, impossible for bank counsel to go forward with his case. That's the power of objections. There are objections to testimony and there are objections to documents. If you have a pretrial order, and listen carefully, practitioners out there, because I made this mistake in this very case. If you have a pretrial order, you're supposed to meet by a certain date, show each other your documents, and list your objections to the other party's documents where you find them objectionable by the date set forth in the pretrial order. In this case, both opposing counsel and I agreed to sort of change that order to exchange documents at a date later than what was set forth in the pretrial order. And as a result, the judge stated that no objections were preserved at the documents and therefore anything that was on the, the list of exhibits was going to be admitted. So there's lesson number one. Don't try to change the order of the judge without asking the judge to change it and getting permission to do so. As it turned out, it didn't work against us, but there are most cases where there is a pretrial order, not all cases have pretrial orders, but where there is a pretrial order and you've got a judge who, as we've all said, we want him to go by the law, we want him to go by the rules, when he applies it, don't expect any exception for you just because you look pretty or you think your case is strong. As a result of his uh, ruling, all documents listed by both sides, witness exhi and exhibit list, was subject to being admitted without objection. There wasn't an objection we could raise because we didn't preserve it. As it turned out, like I said, it didn't work out so badly for us. But the lesson of the day is if you want to stop a document from being introduced into evidence at trial, you must preserve your objection if a pretrial order has been entered, and don't think that because you and opposing counsel have come to some agreement that neither one of you intends to uh, violate, that the judge is going to say, well, that's okay, you can change my order. Uh, many judges will allow you to do that, but if you're really looking for a judge that's going to stick with the rules and stick with the law so that the homeowner can win the day, then don't suddenly expect them to not stick with it when it comes to something where you didn't do what he said you should do.
As to testimony, we all know that the witnesses that are produced in foreclosure trials are essentially robo-witnesses. They know nothing. And they're not supposed to know anything because that way nothing can slip out that could cause a mountain of problems for the financial industry. But the fact that they don't know anything opens the door to many objections. The principal objections I used were leading, lacking foundation, hearsay, form of question, which is to say compound or ambiguous, assumes facts not in evidence, which is a close relative as foundation, uh, of foundation, and speculation. Now, the next 16 minutes are not a place for a seminar on objections. I'll be doing those seminars starting in November, and you'll be hearing more about that. I, I do intend to do a specific seminar on objections and cross-examination, which I the last time I did that was in 2010 or 2011. Um, by the way, most of the stuff I said then applies now, but we have more specific examples that we can turn to to uh, make it come alive. Essentially, when it is the lawyer's witness and the lawyer is telling the witness what to say, that is a leading question, and they're not supposed to be leading their own witness. When the lawyer, and if they're, leading, if they're asking a leading question, you must object right there and then. And if the witness sneaks in an answer, you must move to strike. If the judge is following the rules, then in most cases, the objection will be sustained and the motion to strike will be granted. And when you see the transcript of this trial, you will see that it is in fact what happened. When the lawyer asks a witness to declare something for which no prior testimony or evidence indicated the witness knew anything about it, it is lacking in foundation or assuming facts not in evidence. So that, again, requires a timely objection. You don't object, you waive it. You waive it, that, comes, that answer comes in as evidence to be weighed by the trier of fact. Now, it's possible that you can regain some ground on cross-examination, but that's a piece of evidence that you really don't want in. It'll be in, and the judge is free in his discretion as the trier of fact to consider it in any way he sees fit or she. When the lawyer asks his witness a question that requires more than one answer, even if both answers are yes or otherwise the same, the objection is form of the question or compound question. If the witness starts testifying about his knowledge being derived from a conversation or information from someone else, 
and that someone else is not present to be cross-examined in the courtroom, the objection is hearsay. And when the lawyer asks what seemed to be a fact but in actuality requires the witness to guess, it is speculation. Well, most of what these robo-witnesses are testifying to, they lack the personal knowledge necessary to give an answer, and they are speculating. You might want to develop that in voir dire examination, which is during the uh, direct examination, you ask the witness some questions about, well, if you're going to testify about this, how do you know that? And sometimes you can make some ground there, and usually they've been prepped so that you don't automatically gain ground by going after that particular aspect. If the objection is sustained, then the question can't be asked again, and if the witness gave any answer, it's subject to a motion to strike, which means it's no longer in the record, which means the trier of the fact cannot consider it, which means that if that answer formed the basis for whatever the judgment was, it's subject to being reversed by an appellate court because it goes by what's in the record and what is not in the record. And the last lesson, which, of course, I've been preaching since 2006, is read the pooling and servicing agreement and all of its exhibits. Study the exhibits to the PSA. Sometimes people have objected to the introduction of the PSA by the party seeking foreclosure. In my opinion, that's a mistake. Because the PSA provides... Once it's in, every part of it is in, and every part of it is subject to being referenced in cross-examination or direct examination of other witnesses. And there's plenty in there that is inconsistent with what the foreclosing party says is its case. In cross-examining the robo-witness in this case, I asked him a few questions he couldn't or wouldn't answer. One big one was, why was, and I won't give the name, this investment bank designated as the seller on the documents that the plaintiff bank introduced into evidence? He didn't know. This alerted the judge to the problem that the seller refers to the seller of loans while the, docu the other documents relied upon by the plaintiff bank showed that the loan was being transferred by other parties to other parties. Another interesting point was when a power of attorney was introduced, it purported to give powers to the trust or to the servicer, but it was executed by still another bank 
who was not anywhere to be found in the alleged chain of ownership of the loan, at least as it had been presented into evidence at the trial. So I asked the witness why that bank was named as grantor in the power of attorney. He didn't know. So when I asked him if that bank was named in the pooling and servicing agreement or or the servicing agreement, he said he didn't know. So I said, take your time. Look at the pooling and servicing agreement. Look at the servicing agreement and tell me if there are any references to that bank. I'm not naming it here, but you can imagine that it's one of the majors. If there are any references to that bank in those documents. He said he didn't have to look, but he was sure it was in there somewhere. So I said, please show us where. And then his answer, which even surprised me, was no. I said, no? He said, no. I won't show you. And, of course, the document itself, as reviewed by the judge later, revealed that that bank was not listed anywhere in the documents that had been introduced into evidence by the plaintiff bank in support of its attempt to foreclose. So the short story is that the judge picked up on the seller problem, realized that there was at least two parties who were conveying some sort of interest or power, neither of whom was mentioned anywhere in the other documents or even the testimony of their robo-witness. The judge delved into the documents, read every word, every document that was introduced into evidence. The plaintiff had introduced into evidence something called the MLS, the Mortgage Loan Schedule. But this had no markings on it, unlike the pooling and servicing agreement, which plaintiff's attorney tried to say that this was Exhibit 1 to the pooling and servicing agreement. But worse than that, when you actually, when he actually looked at the pooling and servicing agreement and he looked at Exhibit 1, he found that instead of a list of loans, he found, and this is true in many cases but not all, he found that there was a sentence there saying, this information is being kept by the XYZ company uh, in a binder. But there had been no witness testifying on behalf of the XYZ company, and there was no um, uh, documentary evidence that showed what was in that binder. All we had was a so-called schedule of loans, which did not conform to what was supposed to be stated on them as for the pooling and servicing agreement, and which did not even say it was Exhibit 1, by which one might uh, 
presume or assume that that was, in fact, the exhibit they were talking about. And the reason for that is simple. The prospectus itself says that the mortgage loan schedule attached to the prospectus is not the real one. The real one will be uh, attached later. And the witness, the robo-witness, admitted that the mortgage loan schedule is changed from time to time. So looking carefully at these documents and being careful and observant in the courtroom and not being afraid to irritate the judge produces a win and sometimes a big win, which is what we enjoyed on the 24th of August. Thank you for joining me. I look forward to being with you next week at this time, same place. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.